Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life that they would choose to put into their very own time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish and want to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Nicola Bryant, who came to fame very early in her career playing Perry Brown, a companion to both the fifth Doctor, Peter Davidson, and sixth Doctor, Colin Baker, in the BBC science fiction series Doctor Who. She also played the dance teacher in the school drama series The Biz, Miss Brown in the Stranger film series, and Lana in Star Trek Continues. Nicola was in the films Unlawful Killing, The Headhunter, and on TV she was in, amongst others, The Ten Percenters, Casualty, Doctors, Holby City, My Family, Scoop, New Blood, Gentrification, and most recently she played Sandra in The Effect. She's done loads of audio recordings and a number of theatre productions, including The Great Gatsby, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Don't Look Now, and Twelfth Night. So, welcome to the time capsule chosen from her life by the lovely Nicola Bryant. I can't believe how long it's taken us. I was 33 and you just left drama school. Yeah, no, you had done like... Two podcasts. Yeah, right at the beginning. Right at the very beginning. Right at the beginning, I said, Nicola, do you want to come on this new podcast I'm doing? And I went, oh, uh, darling, it's so beneath me. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we're planning where we were going to do it. I know. The number of times we've talked about it and the number of emails we've passed between (laughs) each other. But then what couldn't be more pleasant? The great thing is that every time we thought we were going to do it, one or the other of us got a job. So it's been very fruitful. It has. Oh, no, this could break the curse. I know. We'll never work again. Well, don't worry, I didn't get any of mine. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I didn't realise this at the time, but I realise now that I saw you perform in a television show in 1980-something. You were in Blackadder's Christmas... Christmas Carol, yeah. Christmas Carol. And I was in the audience. Oh, were you? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So you saw how Rowan couldn't say that phrase, something like the blasted balls, Baldrick, all the bees, which he has difficulty with. Mm. And then he said something really simple on, like, the fourth take or something, which got the biggest laugh from the audience. But when you watch it back as a show, you're going, why is that so funny? I think it was a long recording, wasn't it? And I think he got very tired and suddenly sort of hit a barrier. Yeah, because he has a slight issue with the B sounds. Yeah. So it's very cruel to give him a sidekick called Baldrick. <laughs> yes, he just got stuck on that phrase. And so in the end, I think it was on the back fourth take, he just said something completely different, which was perfectly fine. But of course, it got this huge roar. So when people say, oh, it's all canned laughter. No, it's not. No, it's completely genuine. Well, that's good. There we are. So we've established that, in fact, I've actually known you for longer than I thought I did. <laughs> I think we should start talking about the things you want to put in a time capsule. Otherwise, I'm just going to question you about your career and the things that I know about you, which are fascinating, and they may well come up anyway. Well, okay. Um, I know that loads of people, because I really enjoy listening to your podcast, it's on the couch, isn't it? How much are you going to reveal of yourself on the couch? So I actually went back and looked at my first list, which I wrote out the first time we were going, which is like... (laughs) And I thought, oh, and then that suddenly threw me because I'd written something completely different this time. <laughs> so have you written a list of less revealing? No, more. So I'm, I'm hoping I balance it enough that everyone doesn't go, oh, God. But the first one is easy because lots of your guests have chosen a similar thing. And mine is my love of animals, um, particularly dogs. And um, I work closely with two charities dog charities. I'm ambassador for dogs on the street and I work with chimney farm dogs and I just love dogs and despise cruelty. Mm. And they are absolute lifesavers. The dog that I grew up with, I thought of as my elder brother, (laughs) that my mother was given by my father because she was told she couldn't have children. And this was her baby. It would sit on her lap and she would type in his office and it was terribly well behaved without any training. My mother never trained a dog at all. So it's an utter miracle this dog was so well behaved. (laughs) But he was like a deaf dog because my mother was deaf and he did all the hearing for her. He'd tell her when I was born, if the baby's crying, if the doorbell's going, if, if, if he would just do these things. He was incredibly aware, sensitive, clever, without any training. So that was the sort of first dog in my life. And this dog, oh my goodness, if he was alive and could speak, I told him everything. (laughs) He was my older brother. You know, I felt that he was there in the first child role. And I would tell him about my crush 
that I had, which was the boy not across the road, but sort of diagonally across. And every time I saw this boy coming out of his house and his house is opposite the post box, me and the dog would take a very quick walk to the post box. Oh, <laughs> hello. Hi. He sort of knew the poor postman, though, all those empty envelopes. <laughs> I would just grab an envelope to walk up to the post box. This dog was in on everything with me. What was the dog's name? Fritzy. Fritzy. And he was, because it was a German dachshund, so I think he was given a German name. Mm-hmm. He was just incredible, absolutely incredible dog. And when he was about 18, they said he had a heart condition. Well, 18 was pretty good for a dog of that size anyway. And he used to sleep in the kitchen. So my mum, who was you know so attached to him, as we all were, mm. then took him up to the bedroom to sleep. And he was so excited He lived another three years. (laughs) Sounds like my (laughs) mother-in-law. He was my first dog. There were many dogs in between, but now I have two dogs, Harvey, who I've had from a puppy, and he is absolutely my surrogate baby because sadly I don't have any children of my own and he is my baby. He was baby size. When I got him, I rubbed my arms. I tell him everything. He knows so many words. He's so, so sensitive. And he so reminds me of that first dog. Lots of scatty, crazy in between, but he has this incredible sensitivity. If I'm stressed, he gets stressed and his stress upsets me. So I have to calm myself down so that he's not stressed. Ah. It's incredible. When my mum was ill uh, and my mum had no appetite at all, she was very ill and she was um, living here with us. And she said, oh, I can't eat, I can't eat. And I said, well, you have to eat because Harvey is refusing to eat. And she thought, I'm making it up. She's Nicholas saying this. And I said, I promise you, he's gone on hunger strike with you. And he had, you know, if you tried to get a child to do this for you, it wouldn't have worked quite so well. So I put him on the bed with her and he did stay with her all the time while she was ill. She, he wouldn't come off the bed. He slept there, everything. And so I put his favorite meal right in front of him and he put his nose up in the air. And my mum was like, oh my goodness. I said, yeah, he hasn't eaten. We've, you've got to eat something, mum. So she said, oh, I'll have a little scrambled egg then. And I go downstairs, I cook her meal. I bring up a little bit of scrambled egg and he watches her. And when the first mouthful goes in, he starts to eat. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. But I can't do where people have put their dogs in the time capsule. Somehow that seems sort of slightly cruel to me. (laughs) And I am one of those people who tries to be obedient, which isn't necessarily one of my best qualities. But so I have a thing and I can show you this thing. Yeah. It's a dog grave. Now, this might seem like, oh, this is getting very weird. This uh, is to rough a favorite dog of uh, these particular people, H&AC Case, who died on the 24th of March, 1891. This is an iron dog memorial. Can you imagine what that cost? Is it, I'm going to get to the point in a minute. This was in my garden. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, how amazing. So when you moved in, that was just sitting there? It was hidden and buried. This garden was originally woods that belonged to the church. So it's sort of sacred ground. So do you think someone had had secretly buried that dog in a corner? No, I think it's probably a vicar's dog. Ah. Probably. Mm. Um, 
because they would walk through the woods to write their sermons and the vicarages nearby, just they had all these woods that were attached and mm. by the church. So I think they would walk through this lovely ground and then they would take their dog with them, write their sermon and, and then rough a favorite dog, it says. So there may be many more dogs are all buried in these grounds. And I just think that's lovely. Um, we've got two dogs and two hamsters that have been buried in these grounds as well. So I think my garden is full of the spirit of beautiful, wonderful animals that their owners loved, adored, and made a huge difference in their lives. We've got a few in our garden. We had sort of a, a burial ceremony with my children. Mm. And it was always my wife and I who were just in floods of tears. And the children... The actual process of burying the animal in the ground, it really helped them, I think. Unfortunately, yeah. now my granddaughter uh, is very keen on the idea of archaeology. Uh, <laughs> so she's, she's always digging in our garden. And the other day she came and said, look, look, I think I found a dinosaur bone. And uh, I think it's a cat's femur. Ah. Mm. I used to rescue birds as well because my father had built um, a conservatory. And when they, he built it, all the birds just kept flying into it. <laughs> and concussing themselves. It was terrible. <laughs> the angle of the light, etc. So I used to, oh, this is so weird. I used to put a nurse's uniform on, literally. I'd get dressed and then I'd put my nurse's thing on. This is very young, am I? Very young. <laughs> and I would have the other side of a box, uh, an egg carton, so the flat side without the holes, with pink toilet paper. And I would go out on patrol in the winter when if they landed in the snow, they would die of hypothermia. And I would bring them in and I would resuscitate the birds and I would give them warm milk and a drop of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I had no fear of birds. I mean, there is that no fear of youth, really. Even with a crow that was probably wider than me, a giant crow that mm -hmm. I for three months because its wing was broken and the rspb came out set the wing and they said you are so good with birds you can keep and i named her christine for some unknown reason <laughs> and my father bless him built a whole run at the bottom of the garden for this bird so that she could hop up and down until her wing was better then the rspb came back and they they said yes she's fine and they let me set her free wow I had a crow when I was a boy. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Yeah, but it didn't survive. I obviously wasn't as good a nurse as you. Sadly, I think it was too badly injured. But it lasted about a month. When you first go in, they, they just attack you like mad. Yeah. But it became very friendly very quickly. I also had a squirrel. Oh, did you? I've not rescued any squirrels. Um, no. Field mouse? <laughs> <laughs> the only one that died was a robin. Of all the ones, and so that one had to have a full burial with all creatures great and small sung, <laughs> a little cross made out of sticks and, and pebbles and the whole works. And, and I insisted the whole family came out and sang along and, <laughs> oh, God, poor thing. Dressed in black. Yes. <laughs> yes. So my animal thing, because they are so incredible, I think they don't deserve us half the time. Mm. There are these terrible things that happen cruel, cruel things. Um, 
and I'm always signing petitions to get the law to change, to make the law harsher on people who do terrible things to animals, yeah. as it should be. There's no question, is there, that it's somebody who's cruel to an animal should not be allowed to keep animals. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I just love being able to to help these charities so that they can keep going because it's a really mm. difficult time for them. So I don't have dog collars from <laughs> my past dogs. Now I've got to rescue Marnie as well. And it was Noel Fitzpatrick, you know, the, the vet who's not far from where I live. He said that when you rescue an animal, you rescue yourself. Uh. And I thought, what a beautiful phrase, because it does. It just, it fills your own soul. Watching a little, when we got Marnie, her ears were torn to shreds. She'd been attacked. She's got scars all underneath her attacked. And also abused by humans using her for puppy farming when she was too young. And now she's such a happy puppy. She's learnt the phrase happy puppy. Hmm. And she just bounces like a little kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Their recovery rate is amazing. Hmm. You just show a bit of love and a bit of care. And they will almost completely forget the thing. This is an animal that would have cowered from anybody going near them, thinking that it was going to hurt them. Yeah. And very quickly they grow to accept that that's not going to happen. It's amazing. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, Marnie still has some issues, mm -hmm. but she is a happy puppy. She's happy in her home and she's happy with her other half, Harvey, who is her great protector. She looks to him for everything. And I don't mind if she still has issues but they, they don't have issues in the way that us humans do because their desire is just to be happy and to be safe. Mm. They are driving for that, whereas human beings can hold on to trauma in a way that animals don't. I wonder if that's because we have an anticipation that it may come back, whereas they go, it's over. Yes. Perhaps we should accept that more in, in life. Perhaps we should sort of go, well, it's over now. So let's enjoy this moment. I mean, I can see that if I get a mop out or something that appears like a large stick, she's frightened because even though it's me, she thinks maybe this thing that happened to her is going to happen again. Mm. I had a rescue dog previously who was terrified of men who wore boots. As a tiny, tiny puppy, she'd had a broken hip. It's not really hard to put the two together. Mm -hmm. But luckily, you didn't see that many people wearing leather boots. So it was all right. Mm. But I learned that dogs, when they have nightmares, because Marnie had nightmares for ages, they actually dream about something that really happened to them because they don't have what we have, imagination. Of course. And when we have nightmares, we often dream not about exactly the thing that did happen, but something that feels like the thing that happened, but maybe even worse with all these other layers that we put in and, and all of that. So for me, it's worse when a dog has a nightmare because I think, oh, my goodness, that's a real trauma they're reliving. Oh, God, yeah. Whereas, you know, we, we have to use our imaginations in a positive way, harness them rather than allowing them to run riot with mm. the fear of but. Uh, Oh, we're on the couch now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, then we'll take that rather macabre finding from the wood. Yeah. We'll take that iron memorial stone, I suppose. I can't really call it a memorial stone, but it is a plaque. Yes. Remembering dear Ruff. Yes, as a symbol of all wonderful, loving animals that give us so much. Yes. Fantastic. Right, Nicola, that's the first thing that goes into the time capsule. Right, let's see what else we've got. Okay, so... Um, my other half came up with a cheeky idea and I thought, 
Mm, is that pushing the boundaries? So I'm just going to take you for a walk because I'm going to show you the back wall of the sitting room okay. that I'm in. It's like a museum. So if you can see this wall. Yes, beautiful. Full of lots of odd old things, old record, old phone. And I found that an old record player. I don't know if I can do this, but can I put in the time capsule this corner? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> and it's a terrible cheat because it, it contains lots and lots of things, enough for about 10 time capsules. I'm going to blame it on the fact that it's taken so long to get together. <laughs> but um, what I wanted to do was put music and dance, which are, to me, hand in hand. So in that music category, I've got this lovely old record player, which was my dad's, but became mine when he got an even better one. <laughs> and the old record collection, the kind of music that my dad would listen to all the time. If I say great Italian hits, do you know what I mean by this kind of thing? It says a golden genuine product <laughs> with four women um, sitting on bar stools with martini written behind it. And I'm just going to play because we're on a podcast. You can hear. Mm. Let's see if it'll do it. Here we go. <laughs> do they call those romantic movie sounds? Mm. My father was so romantic and he was always dancing with my mother. So I grew up with this as a wonderfully happy tune. I'll turn it down. All these wonderful sounds playing all the time. And my father... I won't drive you crazy with it all the time. And we were just coming to the best bit of Valare. I know we were. We know we were. I'm sorry, I will carry on playing, but I felt guilty <laughs> that I was taking up the time doing it. Um, so all of this music, I've got all this sheet music where my father would play. Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered was the song he would play to my mother all the time. Mm. He was an incredibly romantic man and he would play jazz piano all the time. Ah. And I didn't understand jazz at all, probably like most children. And he would take my music and he would take my bark or my Beethoven and jazz it. <laughs> and I used to sleep in the bedroom above the piano and I would be furious. I was like, he's not playing it properly. <laughs> I just didn't understand what he was doing. And sometimes I come downstairs and I say, Daddy, that's not how it's meant to be. And he'd go, I know, darling, I know. And he'd be there with a scotch <laughs> on the piano, a cigarette on the edge of the piano, which eventually burnt a little hole in it. And, and he'd go, I'm just doing my own thing. And I, and, and I go, okay. What did he do? He was an entrepreneur. He created his own business um, out of being a boy with a plumbing kit who learned to be a plumber in night school. Mm -hmm. He was very clever. He invented his own pumps. He ended up with this business that mostly dealt with hospitals, cathedrals, old buildings where you had to be, you had to devise a way of not destroying the floor in order to get central heating in. Right. And then with celebrities like Paul McCartney, um, all of his properties, Peter Ustinov, Peter Sellers, um, Madonna, <laughs> all these people who have places in London and designing a system for keeping all of Bill Gates' wiring cool in his place. I think it was in Holland Park. 
and my father's been gone an awfully long time. He died when I was in my early 20s. But he just built this incredible company, starting out from very working class background, night school, self-taught. And he had a lot of sort of books he would read about how to give a speech because he would give speeches. He became president of the HVCA, which was the Heating and Ventilating Contractors Association. Of course, we all know that. We all know that. But it's just that sense of music filling the house. I dance with Harvey now. I've taught Harvey to tango because we'll be dancing and he'll be facing me. And I, we go, rum, bum, bum, bum. And I go, look. And he'll look. <laughs> it usually means there's a giant crow or a squirrel in the garden. So it's a little bit of a cheat. But we do the head together. Look. And people go, wow, how did you teach him that? <laughs> and I just, I love dancing to music because, and I love how music can get yourself out of a dark place. But how wonderful that that piece of music or that record played on that record player, which was your father's. Your father and your mother must be alive for you in the room. Yes, completely. My dad was so, he won a poetry contest. He was, you know, a polymath, really. Mm. And my mother was a very, you know, very beautiful woman, but my father was stunning. He was sort of Tyrone Power, Dirt Bogart, cheekbones, you know, and so witty and dry and clever and interesting and twinkly, very twinkly, you know, the black hair, blue eyes look. (laughs) He would design jewellery and get it made. For my mother. Oh, how fantastic. You don't find many of those. No. And very wise conversations we had. And I wish I wish I could have more now. So sometimes I do. After he'd gone, I had a problem to solve for my mother. And I literally sat in his study talking to him all through the night, hours and hours, for, for weeks, slowly drinking my way through his scotch collection, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, which lasted me like 20 years. Um, And even if it took me two months to come out with what the answer was, I always feel he gives me these clever answers. So he's always present with me. I feel very much protected in that sense, which is a lovely feeling. And did his playing the piano, did you start playing because he played or was it just normal? I loved music. Mm. I've always got a tune in my head. I can't stop writing music. I write music all the time. So if I'm walking, whatever the rhythm of my walk, I can't help it, a tune comes in. I make a dozen songs a day up to the dogs, according to what's happened. Not not good songs, songs you'd want to sing to anyone. But it's just the way my mind works. If, If a decree came down from the government that we could only speak in iambic pentameter for the rest of our lives, I would not feel remotely stifled. (laughs) I've got that kind of, it's the way my brain is wired, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I have rhymes all the time in my head. Yeah. And very interesting, one of my grandchildren, only one of them, is always making up songs. And in fact, my son is working on a song that he he found him singing the other day. He said, what's that? He said, I don't know, I've just written it. It's a song I made up. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. And I love it when kids do that. And, you know, it's, it's in their soul. Music is in my soul. Dance is in my soul. Mm. Every hour on the hour, we should all just get up and dance. I think life would be so much better. <laughs> God, we'd be fit, though, wouldn't we? That's a great idea. Well, what's the song? Two minutes, three minutes? They say you should get up every hour and walk about. Mm-hmm. Why not dance? 
I don't live my life quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it would certainly work as an exercise idea, as a regime. Yes. I think you should start some sort of app. <laughs> Every hour, without you asking it, your phone suddenly plays you a fantastic piece of dance music and you go, OK, here we go. And wherever you are, that would be the challenge. Nicholas, up this. <laughs> Whatever rubbish I just got thrown this morning, I'll forget about that. Mm. And now the dogs are looking at me going, sure, she's off, she's off, she's dancing <laughs> on a hill. She's off, right, let's go find some something to snuffle while she does her dance in the middle of nowhere. Mm. I love those moments. That, to me, is the best bits of life, you know, the joy that you find out of nature and music and being happy in your own skin. Yes, and, well, all right, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to let you put that whole wall in there, although, really, we've spoken about your dad. Well, the piano has to go in, obviously, and the record player and the collection of records. The sheet music. The sheet music. Okay. Oh, all right. Put the whole lot in. <laughs> I'm happy to put all that in for you and cover the whole thing. Because it seems to me it all comes together, so that's fine. Yes. Dad's corner. <laughs> okay. That's the second thing. Let's move on to number three. Okay. I hope you're having fun so far. But unless you're an ACAST Plus listener, we have to take a short break here for some adverts. But we'll be back lickety split. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. Anybody Google Lickety Split? I did. Lickety means at full speed, apparently, so the split, I suppose, suggests it's done in half the time. Hmm, I always thought it was a specially tasty dessert. You see, if you were an ACAST Plus listener, you'd be missing all this. Yeah, I can sense you're all rushing off to sign up as I speak, so let's quickly get back to Nicola Bryant and the other things she'd like to put in her time capsule. Now, what I want to do is I hate the bad things. I don't want to finish on a bad thing. No. So I kind of want to get it over with in the middle, <laughs> sandwich it between the lovely bits. And I started with lots of frivolous things, you know, little things that annoy me, like vegetarian food that pretends to be meat. No, <laughs> you know. Um, and then they got bigger and bigger. And I had a massive accident that happened to me and changed my life. And I was going to put that in. And then I thought, no, because it actually made a lot of other things happen. It made me grow. I studied lots of other things, looking for cures, and, and all of that is what makes me who I am today. So then I moved that and I found something that I cannot find a positive side to. 
and it's quite a big one. And I've put it under the heading of showbiz lechery, ah. the Me Too issue. Mm. And I feel perhaps I've had more than my fair share of it. I don't know why, but I've not had anything positive I can take out of it. In fact, it leaves me insecure, terrified, not wanting to network so I don't because you always think it's going to be misconstrued. And I've had it in all different shapes and forms. And the ones when you've finished working for them and then they do it feel really weird. So you've finished a job in which you've worked with this person and then they take you to dinner and they say, well, I can offer you a reality TV show and two sitcoms if you sleep with me. Wow. Like a banking deal. And I can't do it. Um, I just can't. So that's the end of those. Those are quite, they're ended, but they leave you angry and frustrated. And the whole job that you've done is, is absolutely tainted. Yes, completely, completely. And I had worked for this person twice. There was the same with a theatre director. I'd done a theatre job and he was going on to do another theatre job. We were on a train sharing the journey back. And he said his apartment, his flat was just one minute away. Would I take the script for his next job? Well, of course. I'd been working with this man for nine months. Why would I say, no, I won't walk around the corner for one? I was not in my mind at all. We go around the corner to his little flat and he pounces on me and he's going, this is your job. You know, it's a big production, massive role. But you've got to sleep with me. No, I ran out. I've never spoken to the man since. That's terrible. The worst for me are always the ones that claim they've fallen in love with you. Because uh. it's not love. It's not love at all. It's just complete control. Those ones, um, I mean, I'm 62 next month. You'd think this nonsense would end and it's still going on. So that job I was about to do, which you mentioned earlier, and I said I'll save it for later, has turned into a conditional job. No way. And I'm so tired of it. I'm like, when does it end? When I'm 70? When I'm 80? And I've poured a lot of time and energy into this. And it's done under the, but now I've fallen in love with you. There's no respect for the fact that you're in a relationship or that maybe you might have a choice of your own or any of these things. I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. And I apologise because, well, I'm a man, you know, and I know that this is a thing that is constantly done with men of in positions of power. And you think that surely they now know, one, how, how unfair and how, well, criminal it is, and two, how absurd it is. Yeah. Well, this particular person, I said, he was offering me so much, and I went, look, can I just be up front with you? I've been in this place before. I need to make sure this is not conditional because I offer you nothing but my talent. And with time, perhaps friendship. Mm. But that is it. I am not offering anything else. And he was like, oh, I despise those people. They they hold your welfare in your hands and I would never do so. Well, ha, 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 ha. Mm. And yes, and the thing is, there are so many lovely, lovely men out there. Lovely, talented, brilliant, wonderful men and and I love men and I love women and I love people and I love chatting to people I love getting to know them and I do every time clear the deck and go it's never going to happen to me again it's never going to happen and I don't go in expecting it hmm. <laughs> but I don't I go you know clear the deck this is lovely oh I'm really enjoying this project 
boom, and then it happens again. And it's happened from the beginning to the end of my career so far. And I would just like to be the end of it. And I'd like to put it out there that I'd like to work with all the, the lovely guys. I had a, an actress friend who is gorgeous and she's never had one moment of this. And we've talked about it at length. And she's also been lucky enough to work on an all-female production. And I went, oh, how was it? <laughs> I, I adore her. And we go, we can't work it out. And I go, it's not like I flirt with them. But it's not. I have no idea why it just happens. I mean, I thought that it was fairly, in my experience, I think it's fairly universal talking to girlfriends of mine. Yeah. You know. When people have power, they can use it over people. It's strange, isn't it, that those people are not embarrassed by what they're doing. It's ownership. I like this toy and I'd like to own it. I even had an agent who once said to me, um, who I'd left the previous agent for his bothering me. And when I joined him, this other agent, he said, why are you leaving your agent? And I said, well, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but it's because of this. So let me be very clear. I, I don't work like that. And one day he said to me, Nicola, you give off this vibe of look, but don't touch. And I went, oh, good. Well, yes, that is an accurate vibe. I'm not sure, but it's definitely the, the don't touch. At which point I turn around and he's got something out and put it on his desk. And I'm like, really? Really? Um, but it's been in every layer of this industry from the agents, producers, directors, less so with the actors. They sometimes do generally get infatuated, but much less so with the actors because most of the actors don't have the power. <laughs> true, true. But it's, it's really disturbing that it's affected the way you see yourself and the fact that it's affected your own confidence in yourself. That's really awful. Because they always say they're hiring you for your talent. And then once that's happened, it doesn't matter if you finished the show and had great reviews or, or in this case, I've never started because we had COVID. And you just suddenly go, oh, but was that the original agenda then? And you just lose faith. And look, I'm absolutely dehydrating as I tell this story. That is adrenaline, mm. that panic, that is fear, because it's what it puts in your body. And then I get annoyed and I go, damn it, I'm not dying five years early just because this junk is going through my body from all these ghastly people poisoning my system. Mm. And then I get dogs and I get my music <laughs> and I get walk and I dance and I push them out of my system and start again. Well, rightly so. But it's absurd that you should have gone through these awful experiences. I'm going to put it in there and we're going to bury it. And I, I promise you, I have this extraordinary power. It shall never happen again. Oh, I'm looking forward to meeting you and saying, do you know what, Mike? It never did. Wouldn't that be brilliant? We, it's gone. <laughs> all we had to do was lock all those misogynists in a time capsule and pump the air out. I feel cured and purified. Fantastic. Yeah. Lovely. Let's move on to something much happier. I didn't want to finish on that note. No. So I have two things. Well, I have three, but I'm going to have to bring it down to two. So I am going to have to say Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Over in that corner is, in fact, a wooden TARDIS, a solid wooden TARDIS, which was my leaving gift from Colin Baker. And I've got two rocks over in my my library, my museum wall, uh, one from Star Trek Continues and one from Doctor Who. And one is real and one is fake, and they're next to each other. <laughs> so it was an amazing job to get. I have travelled the world on it. I've been to New Zealand and Australia and 
all over America. I have made great friends. I have been in that lucky position then to be able to raise money for charity because of my association with Doctor Who. And tomorrow I'm doing a a one-hour interview, which is for shelter. I raise money for the Samaritans, for my dogs on the street and chimney farm dog rescue, and for Great Ormond Street Hospital. And this year I've been working with a gentleman who raises money for children with cancer. And all because, you know, and and it gives me a bravery too. So this year I've been getting T-shirts signed at every convention, the Doctor Who T-shirts. That I've met other Doctor Who people, David Tennant, lots of doctors and lots of people who are in Doctor Who. And it's just, that's a privilege to be able to help out. You were so young when you started that, though. I was. It was my first job. Really? Your very first job? My very first job. So I was spotted in drama school by Terry Carney, the agent, who was, in fact, William Hartnell's son-in-law. Ah, and he come to see me in No No Nanette playing Nanette. And the long story behind that is very complicated, but I wasn't meant to have that part because it was only for those who had singing tutorials, and I didn't. And Terry Carney saw me and he wrote me down as a genuine American. So only a few weeks later, I'd only been like a week out of drama school, he rang me because the description of Perry was on his desk and obviously he took particular interest in Doctor Who. And he thought, I've just seen an American who's going to be perfect for this role. But I thought it was my friend, Paul, who was particularly good at voices and was always playing pranks on me. And I thought it was Paul playing a prank, saying, you know, hello, Miss Bryant. Yes, you know, I'm ringing you up because I want to put you into Doctor Who. And I was like, get off the phone. <laughs> get off. Because I thought it was a prank. But he called me back and he said, here's my number. You can call me back. This is genuine. And then he said, look, I can put you up for the role. But the thing is, they're only looking, when he realized I wasn't American, that they're only looking for genuine Americans and Canadians. So you're going to have to go in and be American. And I thought, I'm not going to get this, but I'm, I'm getting an audition and maybe even an agent out of it. <laughs> so the first few auditions were exciting because I thought, oh, you know, this is fun. I'm, I, I, I had nothing to lose. So I was really relaxed. I was American. There was even a film crew in filming some of the auditions from Denver. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be caught out. I'm going to be any minute now. I'm going to be caught out. I'm going to be found out. But no, they didn't. And eventually I was told it was down to the last two. Then I nervous because back in those days as well you had to have an equity card and of course I didn't oh wow the producer John Nathan Turner said to my agent look you've got a month we don't have them to give out how crazy was that crazy if Nicola can get an equity card we will give her the job if she can't it has to go to the other person who has an equity card so then I was like what do I do but then you know my dad's brain kicked into gear and I contacted Equity and I found out that the only zero weeks card you could get was through Variety. I then bought this pamphlet, which was how to write your own Variety contracts. <laughs> I then had to find people who would hire me. There was a wine bar just up the road from where I lived. I swear there were four stalls up against the bar and then four chairs with very small tables pressed up against the wall next to it. That was literally it. There was a, a tiny, like a miniature upright 
crushed literally into the window and a man used to come in and play Spanish guitar and it was it was a great place to go I had a wonderful atmosphere but it literally only could fit eight people <laughs> so I went in I know you have a Spanish guitarist would you like someone to come and play piano and he went I don't know what do you play and I went mm, my own stuff <laughs> <laughs> and, which is mostly like you know, failed romance songs, really, you know. You were cursing the fact that you hadn't listened to your dad. I, I can play anything. I'd just jazz it up. Yes, exactly. I showed him the contract and I said, it means you have to pay me £25, which was a lot of money. And he went, I can't pay £25. And I went, you don't have to. <laughs> like, what have I got to lose? He said, if nothing else, you can look decorative at the piano. I went, I said, I could do that. It's probably better than my piano playing. <laughs> so... And I would do the last hour when people were most drunk and least listening. <laughs> so I did that. I did some kids' parties where no one was listening. I just went in and just sang nursery rhymes with them. I just wrote my own contracts. So I, I ran it, and I had to do it fast. I only had a month. So I went out and I got all these contracts and I took them back to equity. And then they said, right, well, we're, we're doing a panel on Friday. They did them once a month. We'll look at your contracts and decide if you get a card. And they rang me up and I'm sort of on tender hooks thinking, I've got to let them know today, otherwise I'm not going to get this part. And they said, we haven't had time. We'll do you next month. Oh, no. And I just went, oh, okay. And so then I hung up and I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. I'm going to lose this part. And so then I rang them back up and I said, sorry, can I speak to the people in charge of the equity cards? And I, I got tough. And I said, look, this is where I stand. I am going to lose a huge role in a major BBC television series if you can't look at this now. And if you make me lose this role, I am going to go bereft in floods of tears to the tabloid newspapers and tell them what you've done in destroying a young actress's career. Mm, you're my union. Yes, you're supposed to be helping me. They came back an hour later, said, we've looked at your contracts. You're fine. You're in. Hey! <laughs> so I zero weeks equity card when I got the job in Doctor Who. Wow. And it was amazing. I got to work with some fabulous, fabulous people. Every day I woke up going, oh, pinch me. <laughs> I'm in this job. I love the fact that, that it still goes on. You and Colin and Peter, I should yeah. imagine, you know, you still work together and... Yeah. It's that's a long, long relationship, isn't it? We do Big Finish still. We do all the audios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we still work together. We still see each other. And I just think it was the most blessed time. I just enjoyed every second of it mm -hmm. because everybody was so happy to be doing the job. Everyone was doing it because they loved the job. Mm -hmm. And that that sort of feeds everyone and the, and the traveling the world and meeting interesting people and strange things like being, being on a plane and, you know, the air stewardess coming up and saying, been asked to ask you, are you Nicola Bryant Perry from Doctor Who? And I was like, yes, I am. He said, well, the captain would like you to join him at the front of the plane. Brilliant. And I got to watch the plane landing at the sunset and the jet and, oh, the things that you get to enjoy, little little gifts that keep giving. Mm. I feel so blessed to have had that incredible start and, and opportunity. And I love the fans. I love the fans. I love how dedicated they are. And they help me raise the money for my charities. They're very present. And they're always sweet and interested. And I just think it's an incredible show. Mm. And I'm so blessed to have had all of that that I really do have to put Doctor Who 
as a complete entity. Well, of course, the wonderful thing is that it's variable in size, so it will fit into the time capsule very easily. Yes. Um, Doctor Who. Wonderful. That's in there. Okay, Nicola, we have one final lovely thing to put into the time capsule. Here it is. <laughs> you may laugh. It's a flat cap. It's made by Aquascutum and still has the sticky label inside it, which says 100% wool. It was my dad's. Now, I know I've done a lot of stuff with my dad, but this is a very strange story. This is my, what I consider my first West End job hat. And I sort of did my career in reverse in that I did, you know, three years in a series, and then I did the West End and then I did rep. <laughs> um, it was after my father had died and I was sort of helping my mum clear out the clothes and she said, oh, you should have this. I was like, why? I didn't even ever remember really seeing him wear it particularly. She said, well, it's your Killing Jessica hat. So Killing Jessica was my first West End job, a bizarre audition with the wonderful Brian Forbes, mm. who my mother was a member of the Brian Forbes fan club. So this was very important to my parents, you know. Lots of actors that I worked with, and I said, oh, I'm working with so-and-so, and my parents went, mm. But this was like Brian Forbes was directing, Patrick McNee was starring, David Langton was starring. These were names from their era. Yeah. yeah. So this was a great thing. Now, when I auditioned, and yet again, an American role, when I auditioned for Brian Forbes, I'd said to my agent, well, since everybody thinks I'm American, I'm just going to go in American, but you can tell him I am English. But just before Brian Forbes opened the door, you know how you're sitting in your waiting room in the days when we used to do that, mm -hmm. there was an actor, an Italian actor, waiting to do his audition. And literally just one minute before Brian Forbes opened the door to call me in, he got down on his knee and proposed to me. I'd never met the man before in my life. <laughs> and then Brian Forbes opens the door. So I'm like, this is awkward. And then I went into the audition and he said, I've got to ask, what was that? What was going on out there? And then I was, of course, replying in my American accent. He went, oh, yes, and hold on a minute. You're not American, but you're just, you, you're going to do the whole audition like that. And I was like, yeah, because I don't want you thinking of me in any other way, because otherwise there'll be a change. And I just went, no, I just want to do it. So it's like, I'm telling this whole story in my American accent. And I said, I don't know. The man, I've never met him before. And he went, no, you staged that, didn't you? Because this is now very memorable. I, I didn't, honestly, I promise, I didn't. You should have said, I just am memorable. I just am, yes, I know. Anyway, so I got the part. And my parents, my dad in particular, I think, was very, very chuffed. And this was at the Savoy Theatre. And the week before the show opened, they're putting all the names up in lights. They do that like the week before the, the set is going in. My dad drove up on a Sunday with my mum and took her out for an Italian lunch at the restaurant, no doubt playing the kind of music that we were just listening to. And they went and they just stood and looked at my name in lights. And I never knew this. They never told me. Hmm. They came to the opening night, went to the big party at the Savoy, and he bought this hat in Covent Garden because he had an open-top sports car and he wore it all the way home. And he said, this is my, you know, my daughter's in the West End. This is my West End hat. And they would refer to it as the West End. And I'd always thought it was because he'd bought it in the West End, which was true. But neither one of them had told me it was because they'd come to just look at my name in lights. Wow. And I, I didn't even know, really, that he was that proud of me. 
So it was just really, it was one of those sort of huge moments of reconnecting with him because he was one of these men that things you didn't know about him. I'll just tell you a little story. There was a nasty incident next door to my father's office and he let the police have his offices to run all of their investigation from there. I was a child when this thing happened, but I went through his filing cabinet and all the letters back and forth from the police were in his filing cabinet. And I only did that a few years ago. And back and forth between the police and my father after they've solved the case So the police had sent him a check for the use of his offices and stuff, and he'd sent it back. (laughs) And then the police sent it back because they said, no, we have to account for this and we have to say that we've, you know. And my father went, right, I'd like to make a donation to the police fund. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Which he made a donation to the police fund for double the amount they had sent him. And he said, I trust this will be a pleasing end to our correspondence. (laughs) How brilliant. What a fantastic man. And how moving the idea of them both going for this lunch and then just standing and staring at their daughter's name in lights. I think it's wonderful that you found out eventually. Yeah. So I think that would have to go, you know, to all the, the lovely people who keep their lovely bits hidden, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does. (laughs) For all the lovely people who do lovely deeds and don't make a big thing about it, Mm. of which there are millions and millions and millions of lovely people. Yeah. Oh, what a gorgeous conversation. I've really loved listening to you telling me the stories about, well, particularly about your dad, but I can't remember what the one in the middle was. I can't remember it at all. It's gone from my mind. Yeah. Mm. I think I've lost several pounds in weight and I feel light and lithe. And and, ready to dance. Okay, Valare. Oh, oh yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. Nicola, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for oh. finally we managed to get together. <laughs> I knew right at the beginning this would be good, and I was right. Oh, well, thank you so much for your incredible podcast. What a gem it is. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Nicola Bryant. Okay, in reality, that's the end of this episode. You can leave now if you want to, or jump to another episode. We've got loads of them. Or you can stay with me for some technical info and a very poor joke at the end. It's up to you. Okay, right, here I go. Talking to myself again. Not the first time. Right, please subscribe to this podcast on the podcast provider you prefer, and there are quite a few to choose from, and they will send you all new episodes whenever you log on or open the app. Don't forget to click on five stars before you leave. That's not an order, of course, but we know where you live and we'll stalk you. And maybe you'd like to write a review so others can discover our podcast and raise our income slightly. Not a lot, just enough, we'd hope, for my producer and son, John Fenton Stevens, to be able to afford new shoes for his two children. Or would you have those little mites climb chimneys barefoot? Oh, you heartless beast. You are at liberty to listen to the theme tune anytime you choose on Spotify, which will also add 0.001 pence to John's income. It all counts. You see, John composed the theme tune under the guise of Pass the Peas music. Talented lad. John also manages the My Time Capsule account on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow them. And for a less balanced view of the world, you could follow me on social media. 
you could. Okay, this cast-off production was made for Acast, but is available, obviously, almost everywhere. Thanks for listening. I hope you've learned something listening to me warble on. (laughs) We do hope this podcast is entertaining, but we also feel that sometimes it can be educational. I know that people often, at just about this point in the listening experience that is my time capsule, say, well, that's taught me a lesson. Nice to know. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 